Good morning. All right, I may get a little weepy. Is that okay? Only if I look out. I won't look. I do have stories. Anybody you want to know some dirt? You want... That's kind. Thank you. <clears throat> On uh, August 20th of, of uh, 2020, we were having church out in the parking lot. And uh, <clears throat> I was sitting there. Uh, Mary had played this amazing song, one of my favorite songs in the whole world. So I was already losing it. And I was sitting right between... Jethro and Matt Vaughn. And I just looked at him and I just said, I will never have this again. And I don't. Because we have no friends in Spokane. And <laughs> nobody likes us. And I'm just going to go eat worms. It's really fun to just be here and to hang out and to see you and all of that. I want to dive into the word because um, this is, uh, this is a, a passage that has kind of injected itself into me. And uh, uh, we're going to be in Mark 14 if you want to kind of maybe start finding that. But <clears throat> years and years ago, back through the mists of time to a place they call the 80s, Debbie and I were youth pastors in Hamilton, Montana. Anybody ever know? Anybody know what that is? Look, you guys know that? Wow, all right. And uh, um, I had, had a particularly grueling week, and I was moving into a weekend uh, in Bozeman for college students. And I was really tired, so I asked one of our college guys, would, would you kind of stay behind, because I got a thing, and would you drive? Would you be willing to drive? He goes, yeah, sure, not a problem, of course. And uh, we kind of took off, and we started driving, and I, I suppose, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes out, I kind of looked over, and he was doing this. I said, um, are you tired? Do you, do you want me to drive? He goes, yeah, man, that would be great if you wouldn't mind. That would be really good. I go, Okay, and so, so I did. <laughs> I mean, that hits a little bit close to home. Haven't we all been in nod mode while we're driving a little bit? Um, I think so. But in this case, I kind of asked if he could handle it, and he assured me that he could. So what, what, have, what have I learned? Don't make promises that you can't keep. I mean, we know that, and we think that. Now, as we move into this part of this account in, in Mark, we remember, I want you to remember what Peter has told Jesus back in verse 31 of chapter 14. Peter declared emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And then the next line I have underlined and all the others vowed the same. 
Verse 32, they went to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he became deeply troubled and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and fell to the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. We know that they are coming from uh, that, that uh, Last Supper scenario. And now they are walking through what they call the Valley of Kidron and the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives. And they're surrounded by a whole bunch of very old olive trees. Actually, the name Gethsemane means olive press, the place where olives were crushed for their oil. Now, can we take just a second to see the irony here? This would be the place where he would struggle in prayer with his father on the night before he's going to be betrayed. And before he will experience the cross, that place of crushing. I want to jump in. I just want to consider a couple of main thoughts together. Number one, I want to talk about the struggle that Jesus faced. The struggle that Jesus faced. If there's any, any question in your mind regarding how all of this is affecting him, look at the end of verse 33 where it says he became deeply troubled and distressed. It occurred to me that you don't often hear terms and language like that applied to Jesus. He's actually a strong guy. He's generally at peace. He's really calm. If you consider all of the incidents regarding the chief priests and the Pharisees and all the others that, were, that came at him all the time, trying to rattle him mentally, emotionally, you and I would be totally stressed with that kind of stuff. But we can picture the face of Jesus. His enemies throwing so much at him, and he's calm and at ease because he knew who he was. He has what we call a settled identity, something we don't see in our culture these days. But tonight, in the middle of this orchard, he's there with his disciples, and, and they've set aside time to pray, and, and he's so troubled and distressed, so much so that he says in verse 34, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Here's the thing. You can count the number of times Jesus asks his disciples to do something for him on one hand. We, ne we, never, we never really hear him telling them, listen, get me some Jimmy Johns. I, find me a place to take a nap. Do something for me. It's just not his style to ask them to do stuff for him personally, but he does it here. I feel like I'm being crushed, like, like the olives that surround us, even to the point of death. So could you just stay with me? Could you just be with me? I need my community right now. I just need you to watch with me. You kind of think, Jesus must have been really going through it to turn to his disciples for support. What is it that troubled him so much? The immediate answer that comes to mind is he's about to hang and die on a cross the next day. Jesus knows this will be a painful and torturous experience 
So, so, so just that would be unspeakably troubling. And I'm going to suggest to us this morning that that's not what was troubling Jesus the most. I'm certain it was in his thinking. But what troubled Jesus more than the idea of the physical pain that he's going to suffer the next day was understanding what he would endure spiritually. In that garden where olives are pressed and crushed, he knew that his soul will be crushed. Look at it here, verse 36. Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Now, there's not an actual cup or a goblet in, in front of him from which he must drink. Rather, what we are given is a picture from the Old Testament. Several times in the Old Testament, the prophets will speak of God's judgment being delivered to man in a cup. Here it is. You, you, you must drink of it. You're, you're under the judgment of God. And we hate to speak of it. If you know me, most of all me, I hate talking about the S word. Sin. I don't want to talk about it, but he's saying you've sinned. You've separated yourself from the love and the care of God. And here's a cup filled with the judgment of God, a holy and righteous God, and you're going to need to drink it. It's a difficult thing, but I, I have to tell you this morning, God is extending a cup toward you. Not toward your spouse, not toward your friend, not your neighbor, but toward you and toward me. And it's the cup of judgment that we all deserve. And, and, and I don't need to persuade us that we've sinned, you know, against God. You know it about you, and I know it about me, and we all know it about each other. But now Jesus comes alongside of you, and he says, I'm going to take that cup, and I'll drink it so you don't have to. That's what he did for you. Because he's, he's going to deal the final blow to, to the life-sucking effects of sin in our world. The S word. Nobody wants to talk about it, let alone admit it. So why is it so significant? Simply this. The word itself, sin, means missing the mark. Another way to look at it would be that you and I have violated God's created order in a myriad of ways throughout our lives. And it's not about, oh, I made a mistake, you're right. You know, or, oh, ooh, that was a fail. That, that's not it. See, so many are not convinced that they've actually ever sinned. But in reality, you and I chose to deliberately and willfully separate ourselves from the goodness of God, the grace and the holiness and, and the one who created us. And something had to be done to remedy that once and for all. See, if you could take all of the judgment and all of the guilt and all the wrath that's been upon every human being who has ever walked this earth and distill it and concentrate it and pour it into one cup, what an ugly cup, don't you think? 
not just all of us in the room, that'd be bad enough come. How about everybody? All of humanity condensed into one cup. So it's no wonder Jesus would ask for that to bypass him. Here's what I'm wondering. How do you and I handle the cup of separation from our God? Maybe you walk in denial. I saw a video a while back of a guy who was just walking around Walmart, and he would just approach people, and he, oh, I can't leave this, can I? They told me I was going to have to hold it. I was like, I am so not hip like Blake. Um, and he walked up to people, and we'd go, if you can quote me one Bible verse, I'll give you a Chick-fil-A card. And people, of course, are like, what? You know? And, and there's all kinds of different um, reactions. You can see immediate discomfort on most people's faces. And some just, just say it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to go there. I'm not interested in that. Don't talk to me. I don't want your card. He went up to one guy. He said, I'll give you a Chick-fil-A card if you can quote one Bible verse for me. He looks at him. He goes, Jesus wept. He got himself a sandwich. <laughs> and we can deny it, or we can minimize it. Well, I never murdered anybody. I never robbed no bank. Basically, I ain't that bad. Some even justify it through philosophy or academia, thinking they can just outthink God, the creator of thinking. Possibly you find yourself in that place where you just drink it yourself. You just give in and you just believe that the effects of your sin are irreversible. That you're just lowly worm, totally unlovable, no possibility of reversal. Simply a, a piece of human refuse. Now, stay with me, okay? There's some good news to be found. No wonder he asks his guys, stay with me. I, I need some friends right now. I need to determine right now if I'm going to go through with this. Because if I am going to turn back, right now is the time. If I'm going to keep walking over the Mount of Olives and escape into the Judea wilderness, pull a Von Trapp family, now's the time. If I'm going to turn my back on the destiny that I've known is mine from time itself, this is it. But I need to pray. I need to sort it all out with my father. And he gets on his knees and he prays if it's possible. What did he mean by that? If it's possible. Just this. If there is any other way to accomplish the salvation of man other than me taking the place of humanity... Other than, than me being treated as if I were a sinner, even though I'm not, if there's any other way, let's try that. Let's do that. And, and I can't help but wonder, if you're a denier, if you're a minimizer, if you're a justifier, or just a deeply wounded drinker, do you think there might be another way? How many ways have you actually tried? methods 
that, that circumvent the only answer we have that can repair the separation and restore relationship with God himself. See, there was no other way than for him to take the cup that you and I deserve to drink. But he didn't deserve it at all. You know what would be in the cup that Jesus deserved to drink? Nothing. Not a drop. But now this cup stands before him, and he struggles with that decision. He's willing to follow through with it, but he's asking God, is is there any other way? The answer from heaven is silence. Because there was no other way. So it says in verse 36, Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. I think it's important to notice a couple of things here. First of all, relationship remained intact. Okay? What does he say? Abba, Father. I think many of us understand it to be translated daddy. That warm term of endearment, like a, like a child would use. And that's how Jesus spoke to his father at this point in the garden. The other important thing is that Jesus was resigned to accomplishing the will of the father. Not what I want, but what you will. Jesus was fully committed to accomplishing the plan for salvation. He was fully committed to that plan for salvation. And and don't think there was some kind of competition of wills that Jesus is trying to get out from under somehow. Because we are Trinitarian adherents here at the church at Desert, formerly known as Entreda Forster. He is fully united with the heart of the Father in that moment. And that oneness mandates that he stay the course of the cross. He remains faithful to the mission of the ages. But he certainly shrank back from the horror that he would face. And he was making sure that there was no other way to accomplish the salvation of man. So I think that what's really important for us to understand is that what Jesus did on the cross actually began here in the garden. His work for us actually begins right here in the garden. Certainly it began in the beginning. I'm just trying to narrow our significance here. Because if if he had failed here, he would have failed at the cross. Because what Jesus accomplished in his struggle in the garden resulted in our salvation, in our redemption. So that if you come to God and you say to him, I want to receive that salvation, I want that, I want to receive what Jesus did for me, that he drank the cup, not I. You and I need to thank God for what Jesus accomplished in the Garden of Gethsemane. Had he failed there, he would have failed at the cross. You see how impacting that is? This struggle in the garden of crushing, it holds a prime place in the fulfilling of God's plan of redemption. His success here 
a victory at the cross possible. And so he says, Father, let's go ahead. Let's do this. Now, you see the struggle that Jesus faced. We've essentially been walking on holy ground for a few minutes. This intense emotional struggle Jesus experienced in prayer before his father, struggling with these eternal issues. That's what Jesus faced. There's another part to the account. Struggle that the disciples faced. The the disciples struggle. They faced the battle of the Sandman. Verse 37. And he returned and found the disciples asleep. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. When I read that, I'm kind of overwhelmed with the compassion of Jesus. How would you and I have done compared to the disciples? I can speak for me. 1974, I'm in Bible college in Florida. I don't like Florida. And there was a special, like a Friday night thing. Everybody went to, it was a meeting, it was a service, it was a deal. And and at the end, there was a big invitation. If you just need to spend time with Jesus, if you just need prayer, just kind of come forward and hang out at the front and at the pews and the stuff. And I went forward and I was like, yes. And I knelt down and I prayed and I was praying and I was thanking God. And next thing I know, I'm in rapid eye movement. I'm asleep. I don't know for how long, but about three or four of my friends thought I was just, I was just really travailing with God. And so they came over to pray for me, and they knelt down, put their arms around me, and the whole thing, and I woke up. <laughs> and I just, I just said, yes, Lord, yes, amen. And, So what you see before you is a fake pastor. (laughs) But then how would you and I have done compared to Jesus? What about Jesus? We would have seen them there sleeping, and we would have said, what are you doing? I'm the one getting through this. The one time I asked you guys for some help, I've been pouring my life for you for three years And now at this crucial time, I'm looking for a little something from you in return. And what do I get? But we need to see, even though that Jesus is concerned about himself, his greater concern is still for them. And he asks, Simon, are you you sleeping? I can't help but think that got to Peter. Because we know that Peter's birth name was Simon. It was a fine name. It's a good name. But it represented who Peter was before Jesus got a hold of him. And he's a guy who's capable of big highs and then big lows. He is the roller coaster guy, up and down emotionally. And Jesus comes along and he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do a major work in your life. I'm even going to change your name to Peter. Now, Peter means rock. It doesn't mean roller coaster guy. So it's all the more interesting that that now he calls him Simon. It must have rattled him a little bit. 
he hasn't called me that in a while. It's usually Peter. And I'm not sure just when it hits him that it's actually more appropriate to call him Simon at this point. And he says to him in verse 38, keep, keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation because you're going to face a crisis tonight as well. And unless you watch and pray, you won't be prepared to face the struggle that's headed your way. Something really important for us to understand, the disciples failed to watch and pray with Jesus. We're all clear on that point. There's no mystery there. But I'd like us to see the link. Jesus succeeded at watching and praying, and he fulfilled the crisis that he faced at the cross. The disciples will also face a crisis. And their crisis is whether or not they'll be able to be identified with Jesus. Because someone's going to come along and ask, aren't you friends with Jesus? Aren't you one of his followers? And they'll all have the choice to stick with Jesus or abandon him. That's their struggle. And it's important to see that the disciples failed to watch and pray and then failed during their crisis. The point for us, that we would simply understand that more often than not, The battle is won or lost in prayer before the crisis ever shows up. I think it's one of the fundamental aspects of spiritual warfare. One of my very close friends is involved with this great ministry for special needs students, enabling them to go to college. And he was uh, at a, a church who was interested in possibly funding some of that, underwriting some of that. And so he met with the people of that church, and it's a church that's been around for a long, long, long time. And uh, they invited him to their little prayer time thing. And he said, I was sitting there, and people were saying, we need to pray for so-and-so, they're really, really sick. Would, Would you pray for me? I have this situation financially that's going down, and just request after request after... Pray for me for this. Pray for me for that. And so they all get their requests in, and the lady that's kind of in charge says, okay, let's pray. And she bows her her head, and she says, we offer prayers. Amen. That's it. And he told me about that. He goes, "That's, that's all they did. That was it. And, and we, we tend to think when, when, when prayer is deeply necessary, we have to have a mindset. When I was in college, we used to talk about this is a really big deal. We need to go and suck carpet. We need to get on our face. We need to seek God. And so we tend to think that the battle is won or lost at the actual moment of crisis. But it's mostly won in prayer before the actual crisis ever comes along. Now, hear me, please. The crisis wasn't removed from Jesus. Are you there? The crisis wasn't removed from Jesus. The cup still remained. But Jesus is given the supernatural wherewithal to see it through. Had the disciples watched and prayed, who knows how it would have gone down. 
Maybe they, would have, maybe they would have received the spiritual resources from God for the strength and the courage that they would have needed in their moment to stand with Jesus as they should have, but they didn't. They fell to temptation. Verse 39. Jesus left them again and prayed the same prayer as before. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. They didn't know what to say. You see the picture here, yes? Jesus pours his heart out to God. Is there any other way? I don't want to be treated as sinful. And in the moment of release, he goes back and checks on the guys, and they're out. And, and if they were like you and me, they, they'd fake it like I did in college. Well, we're just resting our eyes, you know. We're, we're here for you. We're praying now. And Jesus says, good, they're with me now. And he goes back and he prays. After a while, uh, we don't know how long, he comes back and they're asleep again. And they wake up. And I love this line in verse 40. They didn't know what to say. I mean, you've been awkwardly embarrassed in some way before in your life, right? But there's no excuse the second time, right? And they're fumbling for the right words. It just doesn't work. And Jesus says, okay, it's okay. I'm going to go back and pray. Verse 41. When he returned to them the third time, he said, go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. Some Bible translations make Jesus sound like a dad trying to get his kid out of bed for school. Like he's exasperated. I don't think that's what's happening. I, I, I think this New Living Translation works well for us. You guys go ahead and rest now. Go ahead, get your sleep. Because I think this third time he comes back to them, he's resolved his own struggle. He's found peace and some rest himself, and he's like, I'm doing okay now. Go ahead and sleep. Get some rest. It's going to be a long day tomorrow for sure. I I see a tender interaction. I I think of Jesus having come through his struggle, the struggle for which his disciples should have been with him for prayer, for companionship. The greatest shepherd ever watching over them as they slept. They should be up watching with him, but he's watching and praying over them. And he says, but no, the time has come. I I just think he saw the torches. Maybe he saw Judas himself with that detachment of soldiers coming. And he says, wake up, guys. It's time. This is it. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up. Let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. So this is what I'm seeing. The disciples waking up, they're still a little bit dazzled, a little bit embarrassed again that they didn't watch and pray with Jesus. They weren't available to minister to him in prayer and companionship during that critical moment. But please, don't miss seeing the overwhelming love that Jesus has for them. Is is it safe to say that you've been spiritually asleep at times as well? I sure have. Totally. You've let Jesus down when he's asked something of you. I know I have. And when I miss that mark, Satan, my own flesh, have have this way of whispering harsh and condemning words to me. 
and telling me that that's what Jesus is saying to me. Don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, he'll correct us. He'll tell us when we're off, when we're wrong. But it'll never feel like harsh condemnation, ever. It's really hard when people say to me, man, God sure spanked me. God sure slapped me. And, you know, he sure, you know, no, he didn't. He doesn't do that. Because here's the thing. If that voice is pushing you away from God, feeling embarrassed and ashamed so that, so that you don't want to go to God, you know it's from the enemy and you're just up in your own head. But if it calls you to Jesus to bring your shame and your embarrassment to him for forgiveness, it's the Spirit convicting you and drawing you to the heart of Jesus. And we see love and we see compassion here. And yet, as I mentioned, we're about to watch them fail in the place where they should have stood firm. Verse 43, immediately. Even as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the 12 disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They had been sent by the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders. The traitor, Judas, had given them a prearranged signal. You'll know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. Then you can take him away under guard. Soon as they arrived, Judas walked up to Jesus. Rabbi, he exclaimed, and gave him the kiss. And then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. This is just terrible. This is just terrible. Not, not just that Jesus was betrayed, not, not that he was betrayed by someone who he has led and loved so deeply for three years. It's that he was betrayed with a kiss, a sign of friendship, a sign of affection. And the chief priests, the scribes are thinking how perfect this is. They can quietly arrest him without a big public scene on the down low. Have a quick trial. Condemn and crucify him before the crowd has time to even know what's going on. A kiss with a small army. But then verse 47. One of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword, struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. We, we almost kind of want to applaud. Yeah, somebody's finally sticking up for Jesus. Here's the thing. Jesus never asked any of his disciples to do something like that. What he asked them to do was to watch and pray. I've been there. I've been there. How about you? I, I, I won't do what Jesus asks me to do, but I will do something he never asked me to do. I won't watch and pray, but I'll defend Jesus. And he, and, and he takes a big swipe at somebody and he gets their ear. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking that this was precision swordmanship. This is more of an emotional reaction swing. Now, I'm no military strategist. I'm pretty sure you don't defeat an army by cutting off an ear. But this guy is so inexperienced and so inaccurate that the best he can come up with is an ear. So how awkward and embarrassing is this in that moment? F ear is on the ground. 
This poor kid, Malchus, is probably doing something really verbal. And they all look at it and they think, well, now what? So who was the swordsman? Doesn't say. But the Gospel of John tells us exactly who it was. It's our boy Peter. John also tells us how Jesus dealt with the situation. He picks up the ear, he replaces it on the guy, he heals him. And, and the gracious thing about it is that Jesus just saved Peter from a lot more trouble. If Jesus hadn't intervened, there might have been four crosses on that day instead of three. It's a pretty serious crime, attempted murder. That's not attempted ear piercing. Here's a takeaway for you and me. Though they weren't faithful to him, he still remained faithful to them. Look at what Jesus says in verse 48. Jesus asked them, am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there among you teaching every day. But these things are happening to fulfill what the scriptures say about me. Why now? Why now? He knew why. They did it on the down low so the crowds wouldn't get all worked up. And they, and, and, and they take him away at the hand of his betrayer. Look at verse 50. Here's where it gets tragic. And all his disciples deserted him and ran away. Do you, do you remember what we looked at in verse 31? Peter's em emphatic. I, if I have to die with you, I'll never deny you. And all the others vowed the same thing. It ought not to be that way. Jesus poured himself into these guys for three years. And yes, Judas betrayed him, but they all abandoned him. Scattered like scared rabbits. When even just, just one or two should have stood with him. You take him, you take me. I'm staying with him. He's given me so much, spoken life to me. I'm not leaving. And whatever you do to him, you can do to me too. Not one of them did that. Gives me a couple of thoughts. First of all, I begin to understand that whenever I feel betrayed or forsaken, I know that my Jesus experienced it much worse. Here's the thing. I've been betrayed. And I've betrayed others. And I've certainly betrayed Jesus. But none of it was anything like what Jesus experienced. So that we, we all still very much need to receive the work of Jesus in our lives. But it, but it also makes so that I don't want the people who surround me to ever experience that. And when I see others who are experiencing it, I want to stand with them in prayer and in companionship. I want to be there for them the way that his disciples should have been there for him. Now, what do we see here? Just how completely Jesus was abandoned and forsaken. He is completely alone. Because what he needed to accomplish, your salvation and mine, was something only he could do. It's a road only he could walk. Peter couldn't do it. John couldn't do it. Only the Son of God could do it. So my question for you today, this morning, will you receive it? Will you just receive that? Will you receive what Jesus accomplished through his struggle in the garden? The salvation, the redemption that you need. 
Can you receive that? Could you maybe picture him standing with you right now, asking, will you receive it? You would also do well to receive the understanding this morning that your battle is won or lost before the crisis ever arrives. Can you grasp that today? Because this week, you're likely to face some kind of roadblock, maybe even a crisis, some life difficulty. You can actually take just a moment, even now, to seek to set yourself on a firm foundation to weather whatever might come your way this week. You don't even know what's coming, but God knows. And maybe that's why he brought you here this morning. So you could hear this truth and prepare your heart today. And before you leave this morning, you can take just a few minutes just to be with him. There will also, when we're done, there will be people up front here who are available to pray with you and for you as well. And you can have a moment to watch and pray, to prepare your heart for what God wants to do in your life. If you need to give your life to Jesus, this is your option. If you need to say, I I get it, God. I see what you've done. I see where it's at. I want to prepare my life. I want to be ready. I want you to fill me, to be with me. That's your option as well. Would you set your things aside and stand very simply we need your presence we just need you whatever it looks like in each individual here this morning we need you whatever the need is whatever the situation is whatever life looks like we just need you we don't need the internet We don't need the latest fads. We don't need the best books. We don't need the most popular preachers. We need Jesus. So Jesus, invade our hearts this morning as we make a decision to spend time with you, to know you, and to love you. Amen. Amen. So you are absolutely welcome to sit back down, to find a place to pray. And again, to come forward, there'll be people to pray with you to just spend some time with him. And if you're, if you're ready to do <coughs> the Afraid of Church Yammer, which I love, could we maybe take it out, in, out that way and give people some time to be with Jesus? Lord, bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and give you peace and grace. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord.